Father, you invite your people to the feast. You invite us to come and partake and to sit at the table with the bridegroom, your son Jesus. Well, there's coming a day when we're going to sit physically with Jesus and eat and drink and fellowship with him. Lord, as we await that day, we ask that you would help us now to feast on your word. Lord, that in feasting on the words of Christ, Lord, that you would feed us, that you would nourish us, but also, Lord, that you would whet our appetites for his return. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, look with me now at Luke chapter 5. We'll finish out the chapter, beginning in verse 27. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed." But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. The word of the Lord may write its truth upon our hearts. Well, the scene this morning, as we look in Luke's gospel, opens up in an interesting way. I was thinking of what to title this section, and the title I actually came up with that I think kind of aptly describes what's happening is Partying with Sinners. That's really what's happening in, in this scene. Jesus continues to rile up the Pharisees. He's going to a feast. He's going to a festival. He's going to a party, and it's filled with notorious people. And as this scene unfolds, we just feel the growing tension between Jesus and the Pharisees. It's going to keep on going throughout the Gospel. For their part, Jesus can seem to do nothing right. The Pharisees are never okay with what he's doing. Nothing that they deem okay is carried out by Jesus. And for Jesus' part, he really couldn't seem to care less. First, he's strolling along. We, we encounter him now. He's going through a thoroughfare. We know it's probably a busy location because a tax collector wouldn't put his booth on a little back street or an alley. So he's likely going through a thoroughfare in the area. And he observes from a distance a tax collector, someone that we're just informed is named Levi. We actually know Levi better as the disciple Matthew. It's, it's the same person, one and the same. In the same way, Simon will get renamed Peter. Levi will get renamed Matthew. So he, he sees Levi, and Levi's sitting there in his, in his tax booth. And Jesus saunters over, 
And he, he looks at him and he calls him to follow him. And then it ends up in a party at Levi's house. At Levi's house with a bunch of scandalous friends. Now, it, it's tricky. I think sometimes I was thinking in preparation, how do we get our minds wrapped around what a tax collector is? Like, who's a tax collector in that day and age? I think this is one of those places where the scandal of what's going on is kind of blunted and kind of muted for us. This isn't like Jesus going to hang out with an IRS worker, right? This isn't Jesus going to hang out with, with accountants and, and nerdy pencil pushers. That's not the image, that's not the scene that's happening. A tax collector in this day is really just a notorious person. They, they fleeced the population. They get their position by cozying up with the Romans. There was one commentator, I thought it was interesting, they said they were really part gangster, and part traitor. That's how you could view a tax collector. And it kind of reminded me of Sepp Blatter, the recently resigned head of FIFA. FIFA is that organization over the World Cup and over soccer. It's been in the news the last couple of weeks because it's just ripe with corruption and there's just all sorts of discord going on. It's just a really rotten organization. There's a reason that the World Cup is going to be played in Qatar. It's this, this country in the middle of the desert it's not a fit place to have soccer in the middle of summer because of the desert. They also had no soccer stadiums or infrastructure, but somehow they won a World Cup bid. Well, they won the bid because FIFA was really, really corrupt. And now they're using slave labor and people who are dying to build those stadiums. Well, Sepp Blatter is the guy that's over it. And kind of the way that the culture right now and the media views him is, is a helpful analogy to think of how a tax collector would have been viewed in Jesus' day. Persona non grata is the way they would have been understood. And so a tax collector is sort of this, this cross between a Sepp Blatter and a Benedict Arnold. And one of the biggest issues with tax collectors is just this, this deep, deep corruption in who they are. They make a lavish living by overcharging their own countrymen and neighbors for their taxes. And part of what would happen in, in this agrarian society and community is people would pay their taxes based on what they had gathered from the previous harvest. So you had to pay your taxes in, in some ways up front. So you'd pay taxes, and then you would hope you'd have a good harvest. And so a lot of people have to go out, and they have to borrow money. And the only collateral they had to borrow that money to pay the taxes to these tax collectors in the Roman government was to essentially take out loans against their land. And so if the harvest was bad, if there wasn't rain, you would lose your land. And then you lost your source of income. And so that's why these tax collectors have such a bad rap. They're literally taking part in a system that fleeces people, keeps them in poverty, makes them poorer than previous generations. So here's Jesus, and he meets Levi literally while he's sitting in his booth of corruption. He's sitting in the place where he goes and practices underhand things and, and takes more money than he should. And, and he's sitting there, and really in some ways, I think it's helpful, you almost note like this, these booths are really just reminders for everyone passing down the road. The Romans rule us, and the Romans cheat us. And there, sitting in the booth, is one of our own countrymen participating in it. And it's in that little booth that Jesus walks up to him, sees him from a ways off, examines him, kind of observes him, the text says, and walks over and essentially says, come follow and be part of my group. Come and be a part of my community. 
Then, to make matters even worse, for those who would have seen this as a very uncouth thing to do, Levi decides to throw a party to celebrate his decision to follow Jesus. So, Jesus describes, or Luke describes the guests in what way? He says, you had a bunch of tax collectors and others. That says a lot. It's tax collectors and others. This kind of group of, of social misfits. But when the Pharisees see it, they aren't so nice. They, they look at it and say, it's tax collectors and it's sinners that are gathered with Jesus. You get the sense that Levi just basically kind of throws open the doors and says, I, I've met Jesus. I've met the man we've all been hearing about. He came. He approached me at my tax booth. Like usually people are trying to avoid my tax booth. They don't want to pay the taxes there. Jesus sees it. He approaches me. And then he tells me to come follow me. He, he welcomes me into his entourage. And so then Levi, in response, throws open the doors to his home and just says, come and feast with me to celebrate. And isn't that exactly what you'd want to do if you encountered Jesus? The Pharisees are, are so out of step with what's happening. They look at what's happening and there's just this growing just animosity for everything Jesus does and everything the people who encounter Jesus do in response. But that's exactly what you'd do if you encountered Jesus. You would throw a party. You would open the doors and let everyone come to your home to meet this person in whom you had just encountered the grace of God. Because that's what's happened. But for the Pharisees, they're more quick to note that the people who are coming into the house are the wrong people. Jesus, whether he overhears them or just knows what they're muttering in the corner or just muttering in their hearts, comes back with a line that summarizes a key aspect of the kingdom. Those who are well have no need of a physician. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And it's just dripping with irony. Essentially, Jesus throws their self-righteousness back in their faces. So you Pharisees are sitting here in the corner and you're judging everyone at this party. You're judging me. You're judging my disciples for associating with them. Well, if you're so immaculate, you need to understand I haven't come to offer you anything. <laughs> you need nothing that I'll give if you're as perfect as you claim to be. We'll get back to the Pharisees' self-assessment in a moment, though. First, let's not lose sight of just the obvious grace of Jesus' words. This little summary statement of, of why He's come and who He's come for. God didn't send His Son to collect all the people who have their act together. Jesus doesn't arrive and He doesn't examine the landscape of Judea and Galilee and look for the most religious people, look for the most fit people, the most well-established people, the people with the most respectable lives. That, that's not what happens at all. It's, it's quite the opposite. Jesus comes, sent from the Father, to find the broken. To find the limping. To find people like Levi who are social outcasts. Who live on just the fringes of society. And he doesn't just send Jesus to sit with them in the dust either. Jesus says the Father has sent him. The reason that he's here is he's come as a physician. He's come to make people well. He's come to heal their, their physical wounds and their psychological wounds. And He's come to change their hearts. And that's really incredible news. If you're sitting here this morning and, and you've come 
And sometimes we'll just invite folks at the start of a service and recognize maybe you, you haven't come to church in a while. Or maybe this is a totally new thing for you. Or maybe you've been coming for a while, but you come late and you duck out early because you just don't feel like you're supposed to be here. You don't feel like you really fit or this is really a place for you. This passage in Luke 5 says quite the opposite. It says Jesus came specifically for people who feel like they don't really fit, who feel out of step, who feel unworthy. Jesus doesn't want you to remain in your sin and your brokenness. He wants to offer you a fresh start, and He also promises not to leave you where you are. I love the song that we sang during communion, when we sang during the bread. He's the one that we crave, and He's the one that satisfies. And if we turn to Him with repentance and faith, He's promising here, as He promised to Levi, come follow me. And Levi senses there's something to this man that, that, that captures me. I want to I go and I want to know it. And there's this crowd of people in this house, these broken, misfit, just unwelcome people who have come to encounter Jesus and sensing in Him that there's grace and there's mercy. That there's the possibility of a fresh start. But that party itself is, is a pretty scandalous thing. If we go back to the Pharisees, part of the paradox of Jesus' comments is that the Pharisees aren't nearly as healthy as they think they are, right? And we all sort of implicitly get that as soon as we read the story. There's an irony in Jesus' statement. I haven't come for those who are well. I've come for those who are sick. And really, those who are well aren't quite as well as they think they are. It reveals something broken about their worldview, about how they, just, how they see the world, the lens through which they view reality around them. The major issue with what Jesus is doing for them is that he's associating with the trash. He's associating with, with the riffraff. More than just being corrupt traitors, tax collectors, or these, these religious outcasts, they're not even allowed to go to the synagogue. So if you imagine what it's like in that day, it'd be like saying you almost have to have a pass at the doors of the church to get in. You have to be the right kind of person to even come into our worship service. And tax collectors are not the right kind of person. I was talking with Hannah last night. How do you get the sense of just how uncouth it is to be around a tax collector. What's it like to be these people who actually make a lot of money, but in making money, they're completely pushed outside the religious community and they're really just loathed by everyone around them. And it actually reminded me of a story she had told me. She had a girl, classmate in high school, whose father was an abortionist. And everyone just knew, it's a small town, that this guy is an abortionist in a hospital down the road. It's just this unspoken thing that, that everyone knows about. And so he has a nice house, makes good money, but very much pushed to the outside of society. Not one that you associate with. I'm not trying to minimize the horror of abortion or equate doing improper things financially with, with murdering unborn children. But I think that gives you a sense of how far to the fringes of society Levi and his friends are. And so the Pharisees are looking at Jesus thinking, you're, you're going to hang out with him? You're going to go into his house and, and hang out with his abortionist colleagues? It's that sort of event that's happening. And, and that's 
half the problem. The Pharisees are ticked that Jesus would go to a party like this, and they're also ticked that these supposedly repentant tax collector has invited this, this whole rabble with them. And so there's this reality. The people that are in the house with Jesus are people that, according to their whole, whole thought process, he shouldn't be caught dead with. There's this, this, this thing that happens in that society. When you break bread with someone, when you go to somebody's house, you're essentially sanctioning who they are. You're, you're sanctioning the way they live their life. We don't always necessarily think of it that way. But that's what, what's happening. Is Jesus is going to the house, and, and he's saying it's, it's okay to associate with these people. To get that idea, you have to understand that the Pharisees are essentially separatists. There's actually parts of how, how their name even works in the language that, that underscores this idea. They're intentionally seeking to separate themselves from unsavory elements in the culture. And they get this terrible rap, don't they, Pharisees? But the Pharisees aren't intentionally leading people astray. That They're trying to restore Israel. They believe they're protecting Israel and that they're bringing needed moral purification in the midst of this collision with an ungodly society that's overwhelming what they would view as a biblical worldview. Maybe we can have a little bit of sympathy for them as we think of that, right? That's what they're trying to do in their society. The way that they think they can accomplish this, though, is to completely separate themselves from sinners. To quarantine themselves from contagious, unholy people in the world. And so you see the tragedy of what Jesus is doing. He's going into a house full of sickness, full of contamination. To accomplish their quarantine, they developed this rigorous system to determine what was pure and what wasn't, what's socially acceptable and what isn't, because they want to protect the ethical and religious purity of their people. It's a bit like no shirt, no shoes, no salvation. You have to look the right way. You have to act the right way to be presentable to God, to enter into the synagogue, to be a part of this, this, this society. That's their view of the kingdom. No shirt, no shoes, no salvation. You can't come to church unless you've got yourself straightened out. Access to God is barred unless you have the right friends, the right lifestyle. The real tragedy of what the Pharisees are doing, though, is they've, they've completely failed to understand where the real threat of sin is coming from, haven't they? I was reading this week, sometimes what you read, you find an article that just so perfectly dovetails with the text you're looking at for Sunday, and that happened this week. I was reading an article on the Gospel Coalition website by Trevin Wax, and Trevin just noted how, how shocked the evangelical world has been by the recent revelation of Josh Duggar. For those who aren't familiar, he's the adult son on the family of 19 kids and counting. The Duggars. So this is family with just this, this large number of children. And they've really become a shining example to many people of, of what a conservative Christian family looks like and what they do. And so this shocking revelation came out recently that Josh, their oldest son, their, their married son, when he was a teenager, had molested multiple girls. The entire situation is sad. And it's heartbreaking. It reveals sinfulness at its most rotten levels. There are little girls who've been horribly harmed by what happened. But, but more than really digging into all those details, 
what I appreciated about Trevin's article is that he noted what, what really shocked us. What really shocked so many people in, in the conservative evangelical world is that something like this could happen to a family like that. It, it seems so out of step. This family who had gone to such great lengths to shelter their kids from, from the evil of the world. And so there was careful modesty of dress and limited access to the internet, limited access to the media, even though they were on a reality TV show. Very public discussions about the promotion of, of high standards of sexual purity. The parents speaking publicly about, about abstinence-only sexual education. Josh and his then fiance even saved their first kiss for the altar. They never dated except with chaperones. This is what they went about. And so there were these people that were just shocked that a family that was so careful could have something so horrible happen within their home. But the mistake that we often make, I think the Duggars are guilty of making, that the Pharisees make, is this assumption that sin is something that's out there. Sin is something that's out there and something you can quarantine to sort of stave off infection. But Trevin in his article makes a great point when he says, the reality, however, is that sin is not primarily something we need to be sheltered from, but delivered from. It's easy for a Christian family that seeks to honor the Lord with distinctive holy living to adopt this mindset, quote, the world is evil and our family is good, therefore we need to protect our family from the evil outside. Along these lines, training up children in the way they should go becomes primarily about sheltering our kids. We deliver our kids from evil by avoiding evil influences outside our home. We forbid certain television shows and we monitor their internet usage and avoid neighborhood kids. Now, give an aside here that he gives as well. Wise parents do make sure they watch the intake and, and the influences of their children. Wise parents do do that. He, he's not saying you don't do that and you live foolishly. He even notes, even unbelievers though, will filter the things that their kids are encountering. His point, he goes on to say, the problem for Christian parents isn't the desire to shelter their children. That's not the problem. You should have boundaries for your kids. That's what responsible parents do. The problem is the warped perspective that such sheltering can foster. We begin to believe that sin and rebellion is a problem outside of our home, not inside. We start thinking our kids are basically good and in need of moral direction, rather than recognizing that our kids are basically bad and in need of heart transformation. We communicate to our kids that it's an us good versus them bad, rather than helping them see our family's role as one of service, us for them. And then when evil shows up on the inside of our home, we diminish its significance or hide it rather than bringing it out into the open. The reason we shelter our kids shouldn't simply be that there's evil outside, but also that there's evil inside. The line of good and evil runs through every human heart. To quote from another philosopher. That's convicting. And it's helpful, and I think it shines a light on part of what the problem with the Pharisees is. There's this baseline belief. The challenge in, in 
in Trevin's article and that quote isn't just for parents. It's for all believers. It's for all Christians. The sick, the tax collector, often have no trouble accepting, I need a Savior. I've lived in the muck. I've tasted the brokenness. I see the mess it's made of my life. I recognize I need help. It's right there. But when we think that we don't need grace, or we sit here and we think, a sermon is, is this sermon was for somebody else. That repentance is something the notorious do. Tax collectors, abortionists, they need to repent and believe the gospel. When we think that way, we fail to realize how sick we are. Sin isn't something any of us can avoid. And it's not something any of us have completely eradicated. You haven't eradicated it out there, and you haven't eradicated it in here. There's still a battle to be fought. There's no salvation by segregation. Part of what the Pharisees are trying to do. And so Jesus calls all of us to repentance. And the good news of the gospel is there's not a single person in the room who's too far gone for that grace of God to reach them. That's what the grace of God does. It, it, it overcomes boundaries. It washes even the foulest clean. It helps the self-righteous person through the gospel, through the word of God, to see like with a mirror for the first time the real nature of their own heart. Part of what's happening in this episode is Jesus coming and just obliterating <laughs> worldviews. Worldviews that, that seem so right, and yet they're so wrong according to the kingdom. And that's how he finishes. He begins to tell them about new wineskins. The, the final part of the party actually centers around the nature of repentance. The debate about fasting has to do with the reality that for the Pharisees, Repentance is something that you can see and you see it in a very particular way. How do you know if somebody's repented? They're sorrowful. They're fasting. It's, it's obvious. It's right there. Repentant people walk around and they look repentant. Man, that's, that person's repentant. I mean, they're just dragging their knuckles in the dirt. They're beaten down. They're repenting. You can see it. That, that, that's how they view it. They understand that Jesus isn't just hanging out with sinners and disreputable people. They, they see in his message, like John's message, that Jesus is calling people to turn, to turn back to God, to turn away from their sin, to believe in the gospel, to obey God's word. But his vision of repentance, like so much else about him, doesn't line up with how they understand that to work. That's why they make reference to John the Baptist in fasting. Fasting is this clear evidence that you're repentant. You're not eating food. You look pale and weak. Their observation to Jesus is that John's disciples would fast regularly. Their repentance isn't just casual like these people's repentance is. We see their repentance. We don't see Levi's repentance. He, he's going to follow you and all he's doing is throwing a party with, with crazy, bad, evil people. And so Jesus responds with an analogy. In that culture, a wedding feast, this, this idea of a banquet with the bridegroom, that would be an event that lasts an entire week. 
So any of you who are in the process of planning a wedding right now, imagine planning a wedding for a week. Fathers of the bride, imagine providing vittles that will last for a week. But it's a, it's a celebration. People come together and, and they spend time together. They eat and they drink it. And the point is, during the feast, over the course of the week, it helps when you know that it's a week and it's not just a day. Well, yeah, I'm not going to fast when I go to the wedding and half the fun is the reception and hopefully the food's good and hopefully it's bottomless plates, right? No one fasts in that. But when you think that it's a whole week long, the notion that you just don't fast, you, don't, you put off mourning until the wedding feast is over. You don't fast in the middle of the wedding feast. No one does it. It's just not how you operate. The point being, it's a feast. This is fundamentally a time for celebration and a time for joy. Jesus is making the point that his disciples don't fast because he, the bridegroom, has arrived. It's now time to eat, to drink, to be merry. It's this powerful statement. Jesus' point is that the Pharisees are completely out of step with what God is doing. They've completely failed to grasp the nature of Jesus and the nature of the kingdom. Their whole view of everything is so transactional. Do this, do this, do this, do this, and now you're okay and you're acceptable to God. Jesus' notion is, is so fundamentally relational. Why don't they fast? Because I'm here. The bridegroom has arrived. They've come and, and they've encountered a personal God in a person. While the Pharisees are busy constructing new rules for purity and, and fresh legalistic boundaries that, that set the boundaries even further than God's Word does, Jesus is introducing people to the radical, profound grace of God in person. It's part of, when we come to the table, what we're anticipating. Matthew got a foretaste. Levi got a foretaste. He gets saved, and that night he gets to have a feast with the bridegroom. He gets to sit at table with Jesus and, and interact with this individual who, who is just breathing life into him like he's never sensed or experienced before. This person just, just dripping with, with grace and, and extending forgiveness. Breathing healing into his life. It's a room that's just filled with joy. But when we come to the table to take the Lord's Supper, part of what we're doing, Dave's right, we're remembering and we're also looking forward. We're, we're anticipating. This is a foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb that's going to come. You get this distinct sense the Pharisees expected the Messiah to be this stern, foreboding person. N not someone who would ever liken himself to a bridegroom. But the other thing it underscores is that for Jesus, the notion of repentance is not sackcloth and ashes all the time, but that the notion of repentance is actually a joyous thing. That's the point Luke is making. That's the point Jesus is making with these two analogies. Yes, when you repent, there is brokenness. There is sorrow over sin. But when you repent, 
because you've encountered the gospel. When you repent because you've encountered Jesus, it's also a joyful thing. Grace has arrived and it's pulled you out of brokenness and sickness. People are being delivered and healed and welcomed to the Lord for the first time. When you encounter the Lord in that way for the first time, of course you're going to rejoice. And that doesn't fit any of the categories the Pharisees had. To underscore the point, Jesus uses two cultural illustrations. He talks about old and new cloth and old and new wineskins. The point is the same with both. With the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, with His arrival, a new day has dawned. There's a new reality set in place. It's, it's a new era. And to get in step with this new era requires a change in perspective. It's a shift the Pharisees are struggling with. The kingdom of God, the arrival of the kingdom with the arrival of the king, shatters old categories. This kingdom, this king, calls for a radical response. And we see this implicitly when we go back to the beginning of the passage and we look at Levi's conversion. We can kind of mistakenly think when you read that that this is when he gets called to be one of the twelve. That's not what happens. He's being called to follow Jesus with this whole group of people. It's later on in the gospel that out of that group, Jesus is going to select the twelve who will be the twelve disciples. That's helpful because it helps us to see what's happening with Levi at the start of the passage is Jesus just coming to a normal individual and saying, come follow me. In other words, it's Jesus coming like he comes to all of us saying, come follow me. Follow me. Be a part of my community. Be a part of my kingdom. And so the claim that happens is significant. Levi immediately realizes there aren't any half measures. (laughs) This whole idea of the new wineskin will get explained to him at the feast, but he senses it already just as Jesus approaches him. He, he, he has options. Like Jesus comes and he can re- ignore and reject the kingdom, right? He can just say, nope, it's not for me. I'm going to stay in my booth. He can also approach it and think, you know, I kind of like this. I, I'm interested, but I'm not all the way in. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this offer of the kingdom sort of an addendum to the rest of my life. So I've got the way that I've always lived, and maybe there's a few things I'm going to kind of hack off. And I'll kind of replace the kingdom with a few of those things, but 80% of the rest of my life is going to remain unchanged, just as it always was. One of the twelve will do that, right? Judas tries to pull that off. I'll just make this a small addition and live the rest in the same way. Levi realizes it can't function that way. There's no continuing as an unscrupulous, corrupt tax collector in trying to still follow Jesus. God's agenda has to replace Levi's agenda. And his is actually a little more startling than Peter's in this way, isn't it? Because what happens for Peter if it all doesn't work out? We go back to being a fisherman, which is what happens after Jesus dies, right? Worst case scenario, I guess I go back and catch fish again. 
Well, for Levi, it's a very rare thing to get to be a tax collector. You had to know the right people. It was a significant appointment. You don't get to have this appointment and then resign it to go hang out with a rabbi wandering around the land and then come back to it later. You walk away from this and you never get it again. And so for Levi, it's this significant moment of recognizing there's no half measures. Jesus has come. He's called me to follow. And if I do this, I'm all in. The lordship of Jesus in this moment is just significant. It's a new day. It's a day for for new wineskins because it's a day for new wine. That's the view of the kingdom that Luke gives us. This remarkable time of grace that God is coming near, that, that He's sending His Son near to us, no matter who we are or where you are. Sitting in in your tax booth, fixing nets by the seaside, working in downtown Kansas City, in the darkness of your basement, doing things you shouldn't be doing. Wherever you are, Jesus comes and he offers the grace of the Father and he calls you to repentance and he calls you to life calls you to satisfaction. But not in 10%. Not not in 20%. Not in a 50-50 deal. He comes to claim all of you. The kingdom is new wine and it requires new wineskins. Because in Jesus, the kingdom of God has drawn near to the very worst of sinners. Because in Jesus, the kingdom calls a people, all people, to recognize their infirmity and to repent and believe. Because in Jesus, the kingdom of God offers a feast. Not not transactions, but a relationship. And because in Jesus, the kingdom of God reveals that holiness, holiness is contagious as well. Bow your heads. Lord, we pray that through your Spirit's activity now in preaching of your word, Lord, that you would help us to set aside our agendas. Lord, that you would help us to face Jesus, to face his word to see it, Lord, that in Your Spirit's work it would pierce us and that it would cause heart change. Lord, I ask that there would be real repentance. Lord, that You would give us, as we're gathered here, in Your presence, as Your people, greater tastes of grace. Lord, fuller encounters of Your Son. Lord, we want to taste and see that You are good. We want to sense what Levi sensed, the life that is offered in your son Jesus. And Lord, we want to recognize your lordship. In response, we want to repent and believe and we want to offer you all that we are. In your name, Jesus. Amen.